slavery has always been a, a subject that especially atheists, people who reject God, they bring to the conversation. And they like to say that the God of the Bible is a mean God who supports and endorses slavery. So the question is, what does the Bible teach about slavery? The moment that sin entered the human race, sin destroyed, contaminated any aspect of belonging to somebody else. Creating a type of human slavery that was never part of the good creation accomplished by God. Would you please open your Bibles to Titus, Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. And on uh, those who are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Let us read verses 1 through 13 or 14. Here's the word of the Lord. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For, here's the reason why he can ask all these things and demand these things. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You may be seated. And may the word of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing in the sight of the Lord. As we come to Titus chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, we encounter here the topic of slaves and slavery. That's a very important subject throughout the Holy Scriptures and throughout history. And especially as we think about slavery, how much of this subject was brought back into the conversation. Uh, 2019, 2020, and so forth, especially the social justice movement, movement, the critical race theory, uh, the death of George Floyd and how much of slavery was brought back into the conversation. Uh, the topic of racism, restitution, was very popular. Uh, but you think about how uh, slavery has always been a, a subject that especially atheists, people who reject God, they bring to the conversation. And they like to say that, the God of the Bible is a mean God who supports and endorses slavery. So, for example, I was watching a long time ago an interview uh, between Ben Shapiro, who is a Jewish man, and Sam Harris, who is known as an American philosopher. He's an atheist. And Sam Harris, he says in the interview, he says that there is the inconvenient fact that slavery is endorsed in the Bible being explicitly endorsed in the Old Testament. And then he says, and it's certainly not being repudiated in the New. 
And what he's trying to say is that his argument is against the goodness of God. How can, a, how can this God be good when he endorses slavery? How can this Jesus be good if he did not stand up against slavery? So the question is, what does the Bible teach about slavery? We're going to be talking about slaves, and I think it's important for us to understand better this subject. Does Jesus, who is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, did he support slavery? The other question is, did, did Jesus come to abolish slavery? Was that his purpose in coming? How about the apostles, the New Testament writers? Did they fail to condone and support slavery? Why did Paul, as we see in Titus 2, why did Paul command the slaves to submit to their masters instead of standing up for their rights and freedom? So, as we continue our journey through Titus, we come today to the last point of our outline here in chapter 2, as Paul is calling the members of the church to dress up with the gospel and show the beauty of the gospel in their lives. What, what does a healthy church look like? And that's what Paul is painting to us here. Now he's going to talk to these slaves. So, we see, starting verse 9, he says, Slaves, submit or be submissive to your own masters. So it's interesting because we know that Paul was talking to the leaders, verse 1, Titus. Then he moved to the older men, the older women, the younger women, the younger men, Titus. And now he turns to a different group in the church. That's not related, it's not related to gender. It's not man or Women, but it's a very special group in the church, and that's the group of slaves that composed the churches throughout all the Roman Empire. Uh, I don't know what Bible version you have. I'm reading from the ESV. The ESV has bound servants, right? I don't know what version you have. Bound servants. The King James has servants, but it's just important for us, especially as we go through this text, to know that. The, the Greek word here is doulos, and doulos is the word for slave. So in Greek, there was only one word for slave, and that was doulos, and you have a bunch of other words for servants. So it's important to keep in mind that Paul is not talking to servants, he's talking to slaves. Uh, is there a difference between a slave and a servant? You bet. Every slave is a servant, because every slave is performing service. But not every servant is a slave. A servant has freedoms. He can stop. He can leave. He can say no. So here's the, the group that Paul is dealing with now. The slaves in the church. And, and, and it could, we don't know, but it could be a signal that maybe they were having some issues with the slaves in the church. The Christians were slaves in the church. We don't know. Uh, it's interesting that Paul doesn't address the children like he does in Ephesians and Colossians, but he addressed the slaves here. Uh, we know that Crete, where Paul is writing this letter to the churches in Crete, we know that Crete as an island was a place well known for piracy. And the pirates would come to Crete on their ships and bring slaves. So Crete was a place full of slaves. And the probability is high that many of these slaves got saved and started attending church. So now imagine the challenge that these Christians now who are slaves, they're coming to church and they're hearing about the gospel. And the gospel says that there is neither slave nor free. How are they supposed to behave? How are they supposed to act? And that's what Paul is writing. And that's why we have the whole scriptures to teach us about this subject. Uh, so what I want to do before we start digging through verses 9 and 10 is to help you understand this massive subject of slavery. Why didn't Paul just say, slaves, gather together and start a rebel group against this inhumane form of treatment? Why didn't Paul say that? So... I think it's important for us to have a, a little background of slavery in ancient times in order for us to understand who Paul is dealing with. Sometimes we think that slavery started in the 15th, 16th, 17th, and 18th century with the 
Africans being brought to Americas, north and south. No, slavery has always been part of humanity. You think, oh, I ask you, what is a slave? That's an important question. What is a slave? The nature of slavery is very simple. A slave is someone whose person and service belong wholly to another. That's what a, a slave is. If you, if you think about the nature of a slave, what is a slave? A slave is one who belongs to another. Slavery speaks of ownership. Thus the work, life, desires of a slave was always under someone else, belonged to somebody else. So let me ask you, that's an important question. Was Adam created to be a servant or a slave of God? You don't need to answer aloud, but think about that. Was Adam created to be a servant or a slave of God? Think about, because could Adam, like a servant, serve the Lord here and there whenever he felt like? Because we know that servants have certain freedoms. How about Adam's will and his desires? Was he free, was he free to do whatever he pleased? So I, I think if we adopt the definition that a slave is someone whose person and service belong wholly to another, that a slave is in absolute ownership and under control of somebody else, I think we could say that Adam was created to be We don't like that word, right? It's even hard to say. But if Adam was su supposed to belong wholly to God, his will, his work, his desires were all to come under the lordship of God, then I think we could say that Adam was created to be what? Was it hard to say? <laughs> God, as the perfect and most loving Lord and Master, provided all that Adam needed. That's the perfect Master, the perfect Lord. All Adam's needs had been provided by through the Lord. And the Lord, as this most loving Lord, had absolute ownership over Adam by creation. Adam whose person belonged completely to the Lord, was supposed to live under the lordship of the triune God. So you think about Adam as a slave of the Lord, was to live his whole life in submission to the good, holy, and perfect will of his master. That's why Adam's sin is treated as rebellion. Why? Because he was rebelling against his master and Lord the one to whom he belonged. It's interesting, we talk about the beginning of creation. No sin, Adam as one who wholly belonged to the Lord. And we go to the last book of the Bible, and the last chapter of the Bible, and we think about the new creation, with the new heavens, the new earth, and no sin anymore. And it's amazing that John describes us, all the Christians, around the throne of God as slaves. It says, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his what? His doulos, douloi, his slaves will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be where? Just like they'll do his slaves. Ownership, belonging protection you belong to me so for all eternity the new heavens and the new earth we are going to be slaves of God but think about the fall with the fall sin enters the picture and sin has damaged infected and affected the whole concept of slavery or belonging to somebody else. From the moment that sin entered the human race, sin destroyed, contaminated any aspect of belonging to somebody else. 
creating a type of human slavery that was never part of the good creation accomplished by God. Human slavery has never been part of the good creation. It's part of the fall. That's very important to keep in mind. So, that's why human slavery is still found in many parts of the world today. Even in the U.S. We might not have African or the black racial slavery, but we have a bunch of other types of slavery taking place. Sexual slavery. All sorts of slavery. Why? Because it's a result of the fallenness of man. That's why you find slavery all over the world. Why? Because all over the world you have fallen people. Sin. So, as mentioned earlier, slavery has been part of fallen man's history. So the Tyndale Dictionary says, Slavery was widespread in the ancient Near East. By Roman times, slavery was so extensive that the early Christian time, one out of every two people was a slave. From at least 3000 BC, captives in war were the primary source of slaves. So we must be mindful that there, is, there are some very specific differences between what we had, the slavery here in America, and the slavery of the ancient Near East. But there are also some similarities. There are some differences. But there is also similarities. What is fascinating about the Old Testament is how slaves were treated under God's old covenant people. That's what's fascinating. It's how there is a change. You, you, you read the historical records of how slaves were treated, and you come to the nation of Israel under the old covenant, and you see how slaves were treated completely different. They were treated with dignity. And it's important for us to keep in mind that under the Old Covenant, God was working with His people, Israel, as a nation in a very specific historical context. As a nation, Israel had to fight battles, fight wars, and the territories that they conquered, they had the right to keep those people as their slaves. That was part of life in ancient Near East. And if you don't, la if you don't take those people with you, they're all going to die of starvation. Because when there was war... The whole territory was destroyed. So it's important to keep in mind that Israel, under the Old Covenant, they could have foreigners as slaves. But even those foreigners as slaves, God had given laws. God had given laws to those foreigners to be treated with decency and humanity. Fellow Israelites could not become slaves. That's interesting too. So in Israel, under the Old Covenant... A fellow Jew, a fellow Israelite could not become a slave. Uh, that's why we've got to be careful translating because you have one main Hebrew word, evad, and that's the problem I have, especially when you come to some newer translations where they want to get every single word with evad and translate slave because no, not every time evad is a slave. Sometimes the evad could be a servant. So when you come to the nation of Israel... They're not slaves because God prohibits that. They're servants. And the majority in Israel would become a voluntary indenture servant because of debt. And that was the way to, to pay that debt. And even that was regulated by time. There was six to seven years only that they could be serving like that. So Haas writes, the Israelites' identity as People redeemed from slavery. That's why the Lord, every time He's giving some laws, he's, he's talking to the Israelites, He reminds them, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and I redeemed you. The Israelites' identity as people redeemed from slavery has direct implications for the forms of slavery that existed in Israel and their treatment of their slaves, both Gentile chattel slaves and Hebrew bond servants. We can conclude that since the fall of mankind in Adam, ancient and modern societies have practiced slavery. 
And when the Lord redeems Israel, He's making sure to supervise how that will be accomplished in that nation. Uh, you have Exodus. You move to Exodus 19. The Lord brings His people to Mount Sinai. Exodus 20, the giving of the Ten Commandments. The covenant is being established with Israel. You move to chapter 21. And the Lord is already addressing the subject of slaves among the Israelites. Because that was very important. And in Exodus 21, 16, you have a very important text where the Lord says, Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be what? Put to death. That's so crucial. Whoever steals a man and sells him, he's talking about slavery here. And anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. You think about the year of Jubilee. And that was to release the slaves. That was the time that was done. They were set free. The book of Amos, if you're taking notes, the book of Amos, Amos chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. God condemns Gaza and Tyre for selling people into slavery. The prophet Joel speaks of a time that would be coming with the Messiah when the Spirit of God would be poured out in all the classes, even his slaves. And that's what Paul is going to use later in the New Testament. Nehemiah, in Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 6 through 9, you have this fascinating account of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah, he was prone to be righteously angry. <laughs> and in Nehemiah chapter 5, he's furious. Because his fellow Jewish brothers were charging so high interest that so many families among them were having to sell themselves into slavery to pay the debt. So, in another text, uh, it's often overlooked. And here it is, Job 31. Job 31. He says, If I have, look at what Job says. If I have rejected the cause of my manservant or my slaves, when they brought a complaint against me, what then shall I do when God rise up? Look how he says, when he makes inquiry, what shall, shall I answer him? When the Lord, did not he who made me in the womb make him the slave? And did not one fashion us, and did not one fashion both of us in the womb? You see, Job already sees the problem with treating slaves in an inhumane way. So Daniel asks, he says, commenting here in Job, he says, In the treatment of his slaves, Job has gone well beyond what is required in the Mosaic law. In the ancient Near East, slaves were typically regarded as property. But Job views his slaves as fellow humans made by God. Therefore, he has treated them humanely as people possessing human rights just as he does. So those are some important texts as we are thinking about slavery, especially in the Old Testament. Amen? That, that's something that people read. They, they, don't, they don't bring these texts. I never see people bringing this text here to, to the table. Why didn't God abolish slavery in the Old Testament? Who are we to tell him what to do? Who has given counsel to him? Who has given wisdom to him? And as we move, we come to slavery in the Roman Empire. Think about the Roman Empire. That's where the New Testament is located. And slavery remains predominant in the Roman Empire. Slavery, slavery was so pervasive in the Roman Empire that people were basically, the, the, the whole nation was, the whole empire was divided into slaves and free. <laughs> you divide society into slaves and free. Murray Harris, he says, estimating ancient population numbers is not a precise science. But it would appear that at the end of the first century BC, there were some 2 million slaves in Italy out of a total population of 5 to 6 million. In Rome itself, this 1 to 3 ratio of slavery to free may have been higher. 
Indeed, some have argued that the majority of those living in Rome at the time were of servile extraction, slaves, ex-slaves, or their descendants. If the slave-free ratio throughout the empire was 1 to 5, and the population of the empire at the time of Augustus was 50 to 60 million, there may have been 10 to 12 million slaves under the Roman jurisdiction. So you can see how much of the empire was composed of slaves. And these slaves came from all sorts of background, convicted criminals, prisoners of war, those who sold themselves into slavery, those who were born as slaves, and they worked in all sorts of areas. So much of Rome, the Roman Empire, was able to conquer was because of the amount of slaves that they had, allowing some other people to do the other things. With such a large portion of the population being composed of slaves, it would be natural for the New Testament letters to address these slaves in the churches. Imagine the truth of the gospel. The gospel coming and telling that they are now set free by the power of the gospel. The gospel coming and saying that in the kingdom of God, in the church, there is the abolishment of social classes. And the truth that now we are slaves of Christ. You see... How do you do? How do you deal with, uh, with these slaves in the church? But those Christians, they were still living in the Roman world. And now they had to know how to apply the gospel to their lives. Remember, Jesus did not take them out of the world. They were still there. So, how do you live as a slave under such conditions? As we think about slavery... One thing that's important to keep in mind is that slavery in the days of Paul was very cruel and brutal. Uh, it's very, I have read many commentaries, heard many people saying that slavery in the Roman times, that slavery in the times of the Bible was much easier and much better than the slavery that we had here. Uh, the transatlantic slavery or the antebellum slavery. Some people try to downplay slavery in the Roman Empire if it was just like a social step where you could rise to a higher place. That's trying to make that less offensive than the African slavery that we had here. That's what they try to do, to make it less offensive. No, it was very offensive. And we need to keep in mind that they're massive. There is one massive difference between the two types of slavery, the transatlantic that we had here and the slavery of the, the Roman Empire, and that was what? In the Roman Empire, slavery was not based on the color of someone's skin, what we call race. That was the slavery here, right? The slavery in the Roman Empire had nothing to do with the color of someone's skin. In the Roman world... Slaves could be very well educated, serving as teachers and doctors. So some people believe that even Luke, Luke who wrote the Gospel of Luke, some people believe that he was a slave of Theophilus. Because slaves could be very well educated. That's the contrast with our slavery in our history, where they could not grow in education or have different types of jobs. So what I want to say is that the ugliness, the hideousness, the repulsiveness, the hellish aspect of the slavery in America, the antebellum slavery, cannot be overlooked or excused. But also we cannot go to the other hand and say, oh, the slavery in the first century was a piece of cake. That was actually good. No, that's not true. The slaves to whom Paul writes, they're actually slaves. They belong to other people. They're suffering. Keith Bradley, he writes, he says the following, The bare record of facts shows that Roman slaves, like those in the Americas, were bought and sold like animals. They were punished indiscriminately and violated sexually. They were compelled to labor as their masters dictated. They were allowed no legal existence. 
and they were goaded into compliance through cajolery and intimidation. They were the ultimate victims of exploitation. So do not think, do not let, don't buy the idea that the slavery in the first century was a piece of cake and the slavery here that was hard. There were different aspects, but both slaves were slavery where the slaves were treated like property. Slaves in the first century were considered to be chattel, property, belonging to somebody else. Murrow Harris, it's an excellent book, Slave of Christ. He says, it's impossible to ignore the negative stigmatic associations of slavery during the Roman Republic and Empire. The name slave was regarded as a term of disgrace and insult. When Testus described crucifixion as a punishment belonging to slaves, slaves were crucified. He means that the worst form of death is appropriate and reserved for the lowest grade of human beings. Also, slavery was seen, especially in legal texts, as tantamount to death. So don't, don't buy the idea that the slavery in the first century was, was easy, was good. Was, people try to say, was well, just like workers today. No, it has nothing to do with that. was different. They had some other aspects of freedom where they could move, they could go to other places, they could better than compared to here, but they were treated horribly. They were slaves. The Roman historian Cassius Dio tells of an especially cruel slave owner, Vedius Polio, who had slaves who, who displeased him thrown into a pool of flesh-eating eels. So, and he's well-known in history for being cruel towards slaves. So I, I agree with Harris when he says, at the heart of slavery, ancient and modern, or modern, are the ideas of total dependence, the forfeiture of autonomy, and the sense of belonging wholly to another. The slave knew that if he refused to obey his master, he would suffer dire consequences. Whereas, whereas in many parts of the English-speaking world, slavery is part of our history. In the Mediterranean lands of the first century, slavery was part of their life. If the language of slavery is offensive today, the offense would have been considerably greater for those who lived in societies where slavery was intrinsic than for us for whom slavery is simply an unpleasant and embarrassing memory. What he's saying is, you think it's embarrassing to talk about slavery? Now imagine living. We just have memory. We just have history. Now imagine you coming to church with brothers and sisters who are slaves. And you come to church and you have a brother who is a slave. And you see that he was all beat up, flogged by his master unjustly. That's the reality of the first century. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.1, as he's addressing these slaves, he says, Let all who are under a yoke as slaves regard their own master as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. What is to be under a yoke? That's not a nice language. That's not a nice thing to be under someone's yoke. The language implies incessant labor combined with low status and lack of power. It means to be under a tyrant or owner. That's what it means to be under a yoke. And those are the Christians that Paul is addressing. He's saying, you slaves who are under a yoke, meaning, I know you're suffering. I know you're under the tyranny of others. Or if you're taking notes, 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. As Peter now addresses these slaves in the church. It's fascinating how Peter talks to them. And he tells those Christian slaves to be in subjection to the unjust masters. Why were they called unjust? Because of how unjustly they were punishing and treating those 
Christians. And you read 1 Peter chapter 2, you see that those Christians, those Christian slaves, they're under terrible, terrible conditions. It's, like I said, imagine in church, and you have Lee, who is a slave, and he comes to church, black eye, blood all over the place. What happened, Lee? Oh, you know, you know. The master, the unjust master. That was reality in the life of the church. So let us not think that these slaves in the first century are just like regular workers and employees of our day. That's what I have read in different commentaries. I'm like, no, please don't do that. Don't do that. That was not the reality. Just read the scriptures. So what does the New Testament teach us about slaves? Why, why didn't Paul act like William Wilberforce? Was that his calling to be a social justice warrior and start fighting? Is that what God called Paul to do? How about Jesus? So you need to think, what were their priorities? It's interesting as we come to the New Testament and in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul is dealing with different, uh, different groups in the church, and he's talking about when God saved you and your status in society. And he comes in verses 21 through 24, he's dealing with the slaves. And Paul says, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave when called? And guess what? The majority of the members in the church in Corinth would say what? Were you a slave when you were saved? Yes, the majority of them. Most of them were not noble, rich. And look at Paul's, Paul's answer. Don't worry about that. Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. Were you a slave when the Lord saved you? Yes, yes. People hoping that Paul, that Paul is going to say, all right, let's fight for this freedom. Then. Paul says, stop worrying about that. Why are you so concerned about that? The gospel has already transformed you. This Roman empire is about to expire. The world, the time is short. And then Paul explains why. For... Verse 22, for he who was called in the Lord, why was slave, is the Lord's what? Freedman. Do you see? Yes, you are a slave when the Lord called you, but guess what? In the Lord, you are free from the tyranny and the slavery of sin and Satan. And then he turns likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. It's amazing what he says in verse 21. But if you are able, but if you are able also to become free, why? Because the slave had no power to make himself free. But if that opportunity comes, guess what? Embrace it. Go for it. Do it. Look at verse 23. And he explains. You were bought with a price, meaning you are a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Huh. Can you imagine if you are in the church and you are a slave owner and you hear Paul saying that, oh, if the opportunity for being free comes, embrace it. If you are a slave owner and you say, hmm, maybe that's what I should be thinking about. How to treat my slaves so they can be free. If Paul is saying for them to embrace that because that's good. At the same time, the main thing that Paul is teaching us is that it doesn't matter where you are in society. Because of Christ in you, you can always serve Him. You can serve Him in North Korea. You can serve Him in the U.S. You can serve Him in poverty or in riches. As a slave or as a free man, you can all serve the Lord. And the greatest question is whether you belong to Christ or to the sinful flesh and Satan. 
other texts. We have, for example, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul says, for in one spirit we are all baptized. He's, taking, he's applying the text from Joel, the prophecy of Joel. We're all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves, and free. And all were made to drink of one spirit. Or Galatians 3, 28 through 29. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Or Colossians chapter 3, verse 11. Hence, there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, bar barbarian or Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Paul is not denying the reality of that there is men and women. That's not what Paul is saying, that there is the reality of people with a Jew, Jewish background and people with a Gentile background. He's not denying the reality that there are some people who are slaves and others are free. He addresses all these people. But he's reminding them that when it comes to the kingdom of God, when it comes to salvation, the cross has leveled all of us to the dust. There is no one who is better, who deserves more grace, who deserves more mercy than others. In God's eyes, it's all level. That's why he says in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, From now on, therefore, we regard... No one according to the flesh. All those social structures that the Roman society had imposed. Paul says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. What Paul is saying is that the church is to display the new creation where the old social distinctions of superiority and inferiority cannot be found. That's what Paul is saying. Because in Paul's theology, there, is only, there are only two races. That's what Paul's understanding of race is. Keep that in mind. There are only two races. What? So there are many more. No. According to Paul, there are only two races. The Adam's race, the Adamic race, the race of men in Adam, and the Christian race, the race in Christ. That's how Paul sees race. There are only two groups. Those who are the old creation in Adam and those who are the new creation in Jesus Christ. That's how Paul sees race. That's why I, I have a hard time with... Oh, this is a black church, this is a white church, this is a Hispanic church, this is a rich people church, this is a simple people church. That should never be in the church. That's ridiculous. That's contrary to the gospel. One more. We need to move here. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. Paul says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, for the righteous, but for the lawless, the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, who murder, the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality. And look how he says, the what? Enslavers. Paul calls people who practice, who are buying, selling slaves, he calls them as unrighteous people, disobedient people, people under God's wrath. And that matches what Paul says here. I like the NIV says slave traders. The King James has many stealers. That's the, the picture here. And that matches with that text we read from Exodus 21. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Or Deuteronomy 24-7. Two more texts. Ephesians 6-9 and Colossians 4-1. Ephesians 6-9, Paul first addressed the slaves and now he moves to the masters, the slave owners in the church. <gasps> slave owners in the church? Yes, there were slave owners in the church. And he says, masters, do the same to your slaves. And stop your threatening, 
knowing that he who is both their, the slave's master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. He reminds the masters that they are actually slaves of Christ. Or Colossians 4.1. Masters, implying that there are slave masters in the church. Masters, treat your slaves justly, fairly, knowing that you also have what? You also have what? What does it imply? That they are what? Slaves. You see, that could be easy for Paul to say, Masters, release your slaves. He would never have dealt with the heart of the matter. And the gospel is about the heart, not the behavior, the external. The external is a consequence of the change of heart. And he's reminding those slave owners in the church that actually they were slaves of Christ, just like they slaves. One more. Turn the page of your Bibles. You are in Philemon. If you're in, uh, if you're in Titus, just turn one page and you're going to come to Philemon. Philemon, shortest letter in the New Testament. And you see what's taking place here. You have Paul the Apostle, then you have Philemon who is someone who got saved un under Paul's teaching. He is a wealthy man, a slave owner, a Christian. And then you have Onesimus who was the slave of Philemon. And we do not know, there is no way to know for certain what took place. But it seems like the Onesimus did something wrong and he decided to run away from Philemon. And in those days, there was, what you could do is to appeal to a friend of your master. And you'd go to, for example, I'm a slave, I did something wrong, and then Ben is my master, and I know the... Carson is really good friends with Ben. And there is that thing that it's historically a record that I could go to Carson and plead my case and ask Carson to go to Ben and be merciful. And that's what seems taking place is that Onesimus, the slave, he goes to Paul. He's in the household. They all know where Paul is, where Paul is in jail because they're praying for Paul. Onesimus goes to Paul. To plead that Paul would intervene between, be a mediator between him and Philemon. And it seems like in this process, under God's providence, Onesimus becomes a Christian. And a strong Christian. So strong that Paul says to Philemon that actually it would be much more prof profitable for Paul to have Onesimus with him. Because then Onesimus could be serving him. And that's the... The background that you have here of Paul now having to talk to this slave owner, Philemon, who is a Christian. And how to restore now this relationship, not with a slave, but with his Christian brother. That's the, that's the whole letter. How Paul is going to do that. And it's amazing. You can look at verse 10. He says, I appeal to you. For my child, <laughs> ay, 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 my child, Onesimus. <gasps> Meaning, this man got saved under Paul's teaching, under Paul's influence, and became his child in the faith. And he says, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was what? Useless to you. But now he's indeed useful. He's playing with his name, Onesimus. I'm sending him back to you. And look how he said. Sending my very what? Heart. When you see Onesimus, Philemon, you're going to see me. When you see the man who was your slave, you actually are seeing Christ and me. Because now he is in Christ and we are together in the family of God. Look at verse 17. 
So, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you'd receive me. <laughs> he says, verse 15, for it perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while under God's providence, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a what? Beloved. Beloved what? Brother. A beloved brother. And here you see all the teaching of the New Testament about slavery, that there is no slave or free, that, hey, Masters, treat your slaves justly. Coming to real life application in the life of Philemon and Onesimus. Paul doesn't say, Philemon, come home, man. Set your slaves free. He doesn't say that. Paul is not playing William Wilberforce here. He's going to the heart of the matter. He's dealing with the heart what the gospel accomplishes. He says, So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you'd receive me. Imagine Paul knocking on, that, on Philemon's door that day. How would Philemon welcome Paul? With a beating? With a flogging? No, he loves Paul. He got saved under Paul's teaching. He would receive Paul with arms wide open, kissing Paul, hugging Paul, treating Paul as his beloved brother. And Paul says, do you know what I want you? To do the same with Philemon, with Onesimus. Receive him as you'd receive me. How would, how would Philemon receive Onesimus now? We know the answer. That's why this letter is here. That's why this letter is here. Because we know that the gospel is active, powerful in his life. And he would receive Onesimus as a new person. And Philemon now would have a new understanding of what the gospel does. It breaks the social, the social walls that divide people that place one over the other with a sense of superiority and inferiority. So, as a conclusion here, why didn't God just condemn slavery? That's what people say. Why? Why didn't Jesus just come to fight against the social injustice of slavery? Why didn't Paul act like William Wilberforce or John Newton fighting against slavery? And the answer is very simple. Who are we to question God? Who are we to think that we are wiser than God? To tell Him what to do. Shame on us for thinking like that. He's much wiser than us. He's much... He's perfect. All His ways are perfect. Even how He deals with the system of slavery. But there are other things we need to consider. When you look at these scriptures, from beginning to end, we see what God thinks about slavery. It's very clear. The problem is people want to skip these passages. I have never seen an atheist going to the book of Philemon. And when they go, they go without understanding to see what Paul is actually doing there. Second, Christians in the first century or prior to that did not live in a democratic society where they could vote or change the legal system. Do you think that Christians in the first century could just go and change the whole Roman legal system? That's a comedy. It's a joke. People who do not understand history. If slaves tried rebelling against the Roman system, they would all have been put to death by crucifixion. And besides that, God never called the church to be doing that. The focus of the scriptures, the focus of the drum of redemption is not social justice and social reform, but the deliverance from the slavery of Satan and sin. It's only when people become slaves of Christ that they can see the foolishness and the evil of human slavery. Think about when missionaries go to different parts of the world. And some missionaries go to places where there's cannibalism, 
polygamy, slavery, child sacrifice. And I'm telling you, these missionaries, they don't go there and start protesting against the government. They go there with the power of the gospel and start changing people little by little. William Carey, when he went to India, he knew all the evils in India. The infanticide, the sati, the burning of widows alive. He knew all that. But he went to India to preach the gospel, plant churches, shepherd the people. And with time, as the gospel spread and changed people's lives, they were able, in God's providence, for some loss to be taking place. And if you go to China or North Korea today, don't you dare think that you can go there and start fighting against the government. You guys need to stop this evil government. You're going to be put to death. You've got to go with the power of the gospel to change hearts. It's change of hearts. So when we behold the teaching of the New Testament, we might not find the call to the abolition of slavery in the manner that we would like to see, but the gospel provides the abolition of something much greater, the abolition of the slavery to sin and Satan. Because we are always slaves. We are all slaves. That, that's the theology of the scriptures. We are either slaves of God and righteousness, or you're slaves of sin and our sinful flesh. And then you read the New Testament and you see all the one another's. Love one another, serve one another, accept one another, be hospitable to one another, be devoted to one another, honor one another, live in harmony with one another, bear with one another, be kind and compassionate to one another, carry one another's burden, forgive one another, build one another up, admonish one another, encourage one another, greet one another with a holy kiss. And he's telling all the members of the church how ridiculous it is for in a church, just the white people kiss the white people and serve the white people. Or the black people just serve the black people and forgive the black people. That's ridiculous. One another implies everybody. Because the gospel has placed us down where we deserve to be. A Jewish man would never kiss a Gentile. A slave master would never kiss his slave. The kiss was a sign of deep affection among those who belonged to the same family. The holy kiss, holy affection, that was scandalous in the Roman Empire to go to a church to see Christians where you have a slave master now kissing, hugging, embracing his slave as his own brother or sister in Christ. The command to love one another as Christ loved us cannot be performed in a system of slavery. How can you fulfill? That's the shame of those who claim to be Christians during the time of slavery here or any other place. How can you fulfill the command to love one another as Christ loved us when you're treating people as animals? To love one another as Christ loved us can only lead to the abol abolishment of any system of oppression. And the gospel of Jesus, like this powerful antibiotic that kills the infection of racism, narcissism, arrogance, self-centeredness among his people. And Paul is talking to the church. The church, the church is an embassy of heaven. The church is supposed to be this place that is different. People in the Roman Empire, people in all other places, they're supposed to come to church and see something completely different. Where you have slaves and slave masters. Kissing one another, treating one another with dignity, loving one another, forgiving one another, exhorting one another. Imagine you come to church under the Roman Empire and you have a man, suppose Jose is a slave owner, and actually the elder in his church is a slave, and he submits to the elder who is a slave in Christ with joy. That's a completely alien thing. And that's how it's supposed to be. The church is supposed to be different. And if, if, in God's providence and will, he decides to bring some people who are Christians into the government to change laws, we praise him and we thank him. But the Lord never called the church to be this rebellious group to stand up and protest. We are supposed to be different as a group of people. Amen.
So, and the whole thing is, the greatest abolition that the gospel brings is not the abolition of abortion or slavery, child trafficking, but it's the abolition of sin in people's hearts. And that's, a, that, that's the greatest need. That's the greatest need. And that's why when you come to the New Testament, we see that the greatest emphasis is not slaves, seek your freedom. Slaves, let's fight together. It's slaves. Adorn yourselves with the gospel. Masters, adorn yourselves with the gospel. Because the gospel is the power of God to redeem people from the slavery of sin. Amen? Father, we thank you so much for your word and thank you for your wisdom. We humble ourselves before the authority of your word and the authority of your lordship. In the church, we are always slaves, joyful, happy, glad slaves, because we have the most loving, the most gracious master in Lord. Slaves who are sons and daughters. Lord, there are some here this morning who are enslaved to sin and Satan, their flesh. And you pray that the power of the gospel would conquer their hearts. Abolishing this slavery, breaking the chains that have taken these people captive, Lord. Help them fight to find true freedom in being a slave of Christ. That's where the freedom is. And Lord, help us. Help us to be a church where the social dividing walls are abolished in Christ. Deliver us, Lord, from all the evil of a sense of superiority or even inferiority, Lord. Help us to see who we are in Christ and who Christ is as our magnificent Lord and Master. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. Amen.